So thank you, Lord God, and we pray now that you would cause us by your grace to preach your gospel. In, in Jesus' name, we pray, Lord God, amen. Twenty-five years ago, in 1991, when I was a youth pastor in Danville, California, one Monday night, I introduced a series on the Revelation. Fifteen years ago, look, look out, I preached through the Revelation, and some of you were there. Twelve years ago, published a book that you can get on Amazon if you have questions about this morning's sermon. But 25 years ago, I introduced the series, and, and I did so by, by talking about how confusing life is in this world, and I suggested that it would be nice if we had some sort of special knowledge to help us understand what was really going on. I then shared that I've been doing some amazing research regarding the harmonic convergence in the seven bowls of wrath. I showed the students two graphs which systematically plotted that convergence in the hermeneutical system, the apocalyptic vision, as it related to the geopolitical, geosyncratic issues of the day. I shared that it clearly pointed to the year in which the Antichrist would appear on the world scene, 1991. I then revealed the remarkable numeric acuity so prevalent in the last 11 chapters of the Revelation. On the overhead projector, we began to fill in the blanks that would spell out the name of the Antichrist all according to numeric acuitive construction. Before our eyes, the name began to take shape. Saxork Midge. <laughs> now, of course, I was just making all this stuff up. Um, but they were buying it, and they were smart kids. I mean, really smart kids. They were, they were I remember doing this, because it took a while, about 10, 15 minutes. I, I remember kind of freaking out inside, thinking to myself, holy crap, I could start a cult. All you need to do is just tell people you have special knowledge that they can somehow use to save their tail, and they'll do what you tell them and give, give you money. Well, everyone stared at the name on the overhead projector sheet. And I said, I just don't know what this name means. Saxork Midge. What if we reversed polarity? And then I took the overhead sheet and I, I turned it over. And all of a sudden it became clear. The name was not Saxork Midge. The name was Jim Kruskus, who was our new youth intern. He was sitting in the back of the room. And so we all began to scream and, and yell. And, and uh, the kids looked up like, hey, you, you were making up that numerative, acutive, geosyncratic's not even a word. But we were yelling. And we ran back and we grabbed Jim. And we dragged Jim up to the front of the room. He, he was struggling. And he, he was wearing this Christian t-shirt. And we 
ripped the Christian t-shirt off of him. Sure enough, there was like some satanic heavy metal t-shirt underneath, you know. And then we ripped that one off. There was another one, Ozzy Osbourne. There was another one, another one. Ripped off all of Jim's t-shirt until he was standing in front of uh, 150 confused kids bare-chested. But, but it wasn't really bare-chested because Jim's chest was covered with this like thick, black, curly Greek hair. It was really, it was amazing. It was like a rug, seriously. And, and he's standing there struggling. We're holding him and, and I yelled, check for the mark! And it just happened that Matt, who was like my associate, the high school youth director, well, he happened to have an electric razor plugged into the outlet right behind where Jim was standing. So as we held Jim, we began to shave his chest hair. And sure enough, we shaved off this side and lo and behold, a big black Number six. Now, I had drawn that on his chest about an hour before underneath the chest here with a magic marker, but I screamed and I yelled, and then we, we shaved off the middle of Jim's chest. Another big number six. And I said, Jim, I'm so disappointed. How are we going to explain to the parents that we hired the Antichrist for the summer youth intern? And then I shaved, we shaved this one, and a number, a number slowly appeared. Five. <laughs> six, six, five. So, oh man, Jim, I'm so sorry. I, it's embarrassing, but I miscalculated. We were, we were off by one. So, was I off by one or uh, more than one? You know, people have been uh, speculating as to the identity of the Antichrist for over, over 2,000 years, and it would be helpful uh, just to know who that Antichrist is. Ba back in 1991, the leading contenders for Antichrist were Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters in each, six, 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 six in each, in each name, and, uh, and then Mikhail Gorbachev, because he had that freaky weird, you know, head tattoo that looked like a head wound, and then the new guy on the block was Saddam Hussein. It would be nice to know, because if you knew, you could just nuke him, or at least not vote for him, if, if you knew. But I did know this. I knew that we should shave Jim's chest hair to check for the mark, because I had seen the movie The Omen sometime back in 1978. In The Omen, Robert Thorne, who's an ambassador for the United States government, adopts a baby boy in uh, Rome. Unfortunately, the boy develops some discipline problems, not least of which is his refusal to go to church. A Catholic priest suggests that the problem may be that the boy is the Antichrist. In this scene, Robert checks for the mark as Damien is sleeping. That's a bummer. 
So Robert tries to kill Damien at the church with the seven knives of Megiddo, which according to the movie, that's the way I guess you kill the Antichrist. But a policeman kills Robert before he can kill Damien and thus inadvertently saves the Antichrist. Robert's funeral is attended by the President of the United States, who now takes custody of the smiling young Antichrist, Damien Thorne. The movie ends with a quote from Revelation 13. Last week, we preached on Revelation 12, and I said that this week, we'd talk about the Antichrist. To be honest with you, I was pretty stressed out about the Antichrist from 1978, probably up until sometime in the mid-1990s. I was stressed out ever since I saw that movie. I wasn't stressed out about Saddam Hussein, Mikhail Gorbachev, or Ronald Wilson Reagan. I was stressed out about God and me. I knew that the Antichrist fulfilled ancient prophecies, and so it bothered me that God would predestine someone to be the Antichrist. I remember praying, God, please don't let me be the Antichrist. I mean, what if I'm the Antichrist? That would really suck. No kidding, I went home from the movie and I checked under my, I checked under my hair for the mark. Well, in Revelation 12, we met the woman clothed with the sun that gives birth to Christ and his body, and we realize that that woman is us. The dragon chases her with a river of lies that issues from his mouth, but the earth opens her mouth and swallows the river. All the lies are really one lie, that I create God, when the truth is that God creates me. At the end of chapter 12, the dragon, who is the devil, stands on the shore of the sea. He's summoning help. Revelation 13, verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and a blasphemous name on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. In Revelation 17, we discover that the sea is the people and the nations. The ten horns are ten kings that are still to receive power. The seven heads are seven hills, and we know that Rome is the city on seven hills. The seven heads are also seven kings. Five have already fallen. One is, and one is yet to come. Emperor Nero was the fifth emperor of, of Rome. At the time of the revelation, he had recently died from a self-inflicted head wound, and there was a, a myth that he would come back, but he didn't come back. However, in 69 AD, the empire that appeared to have fallen apart was like almost miraculously revived, and people would say, who can battle against it? Well, this beast in the vision is a lion, a bear, and a leopard. In the book of Daniel, that symbolizes Babylon, Persia, and Greece. All empires that oppressed the people of God, like Rome was oppressing the people of God at the time of the Revelation. Verse 4, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints, and to conquer them. That's a sobering thought, but the beast is allowed to conquer the saints 
just as Rome and Jerusalem was allowed to crucify the Christ. I think Adolf Hitler was probably the most obvious candidate for Antichrist in the 20th century. On March 14, 1938, he annexed Austria and obtained the Spear of Destiny, the spear that was supposedly thrust into Christ's side as he was hanging on the cross. For Hitler, it was one of his most prized possessions. He describes his first encounter with the spear in the Hofbrau Museum. He, he describes it as follows. I stood there gazing upon it for several minutes, quite oblivious to the scene around me. It seemed to carry some hidden meaning which evaded me. Yeah. A meaning which I felt I inwardly knew, yet could not bring to consciousness. I felt as though I myself had held it before in some earlier century of history, that I myself had once claimed it as my talisman of power and held the destiny of the world in my hands. Well, the Antichrist lusts for power like a beast. Maybe that's the best way uh, to recognize him. He lusts for power. He, he believes that the survival of, uh, the, he believes in the survival of the fittest, that, that the first will be first and the last will be last and that he who exalts himself will be exalted. The way of this fallen world, the Antichrist lusts for power. In the human arena, that looks like political power, and so I think the most obvious candidate for Antichrist in 2016 might look something, something like, like this. Be wary of this person. Satan's original lie, you know, was a temptation to power. The suggestion that we take knowledge in order to make ourselves in the image of God. Well, I'm sorry for bombarding you with so much scripture this morning, but I'd like us to identify the Antichrist before the end of the service. Okay, Revelation 13, 11, John continues. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate. This is the only place in the Revelation where we're invited to calculate, so like we can... Uh, like it's saying, you, can, you guys can figure this out. Let, no one who has, let, the, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. <clears throat> well, well, that tells us a, a bit about the first beast. The first beast comes from the sea, like Rome came from the sea. And all, almost all commentators who say the Revelation associate the first beast somehow with Rome. The second beast comes from the earth, which is also translated land and often refers to the promised land, Eretz Israel. This beast looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It's a false prophet. A false prophet who preaches the glory of that first beast. 
And so the Antichrist will hide in religion. The Antichrist hides in religion a beast that looks like a lamb. He'll look religious and probably use words like freedom, love, and grace, but listen closely, and the words mean this, conquest, power, and retribution. He may look like Jesus the lamb, but he'll act like a beast and speak like the dragon by, 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 by crusade, for instance. He doesn't mean pick up your cross. He means nail someone else to your cross. He may even call down fire from heaven, but the fire will not be the fire of God's glorious presence. It will be fire from things like, like napalm and rocket grenades and nuclear bombs. Historically, there have been at least three Three major streams of interpretation regarding the Revelation. The Preterists, the Historists, and the Futurists. The Preterists believe that the Revelation primarily refers to events that were occurring at the time that the Revelation was given. So they often argue that the beast from the sea is the Roman Emperor Nero. And the false prophet was the Judaism that collaborated with Rome against the early church. It was common in that day to ascribe uh, numbers to letters. So like in Pompeii, there's even a graffiti on the wall that says, my girlfriend is number so, so, whatever, her, the name of her number. Uh, 666 uh, is the number that you get when you add together all the letters in Nero's full name. 666 or 616, depending on how it's spelled. And there are two ancient versions of the Revelation. One has 616 and one has 666. Nero was the guy that dipped Christians in pitch, tied them to poles, lit them on fire as human torches in the arena while other Christians were being martyred. The historists believe that the revelation unfolds as all history unfolds. So most of these folks have argued that the Antichrist is the Pope. That list includes Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, Thomas Cramner, John Knox, Cotton Mather. Up until Vatican, chapter two, Vatican II in the 60s, uh, the Roman church did argue that they were necessary for salvation, just as Jesus the Christ is necessary for salvation. In Greek, antichristos does not simply mean opposed to Christ. It means in place of Christ or imitation Christ. So, Pope makes some sense. However, the problem with this Pope is he says stuff like, who am I to judge? That's a very un-anti-Christ-like thing to say. Not a very good antichrist. The futurist they come up with the best stuff for Hollywood movies. They usually believe that the Revelation refers to this bizarre seven-year period, uh, at least 2,000 years after the Revelation was written and sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor. This position can be a bit ironic since they often resort to politics cloaked in religion to advance an agenda according to their special knowledge uh, that, is often, um, that often involves the use of like guns, bombs, and, and armies to do rather un-Christ-like activity in the name of Christ, almost anti-Christ. Well, anyway, a, a popular contender for anti-Christ among these folks is this guy. Now, you see, if that's really the antichrist on the left there, I don't know where they got that picture. There is like a remarkable re resemblance. There's a four stream of thought uh, 
that would say, well, there may be something to each of the previous three streams of thought, but, but this stream of thought would argue that we battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and the world rulers of this present darkness. So the beast from the sea is a demonic entity that manifests in political power throughout this current age. And the beast from the land is a demonic entity that manifests in religious power throughout this current age, our age. So, 666 might refer to Nero, but it also might refer to our age, the human age. Humans, you remember, are remade on the sixth day of creation uh, before they're, they're finished by, by the seventh. To be marked with a trinity of sixes might be faith in humanity as the savior of humanity. Jesus is crucified at the sixth hour on the sixth day of the week, on the sixth day of creation, by powerful political and religious men who, who want to be the savior of Israel and the savior of themselves. It's on the sixth day that humanity is tempted to power, to take knowledge and create the self in the image of God. And it's on the sixth day that humanity is tempted to religion, to hide in the leaves of the tree. Human religion is all about hiding our lack of love in laws about love. Politics and religion on the sixth day. Well, the Antichrist lusts for power and hides in religion. 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, which is lovelessness, for love fulfills the law, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now I wish we had more time to talk about all that, but we don't. But this much is clear. We can't see Jesus in glory until the man of lawlessness, which is lovelessness, is revealed. We can't see the Christ until the Antichrist is revealed. Then Jesus Christ will bring this Antichrist to nothing with the breath of his mouth and the appearance of his coming, the epiphania, manifestation of his parousia, his effective presence or his coming. But, but, but before that day, before that day, the Antichrist will exalt himself and sit on the throne in the temple of God. So the Antichrist is profoundly arrogant, thinks that the temple is his. 
The Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who believed that he was literally the epiphany of Zeus, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, actually did um, take his place in the temple of God in Jerusalem by erecting a statue to Zeus in the holy place in 167 B.C. The Jews refer to that as the desolation sacrilege or the abomination of desolation. Emperor Caligula threatened to do the very same thing in 40 A.D. In 70 A.D., Roman soldiers did something like that before they destroyed the temple and literally plowed it into the ground. And that's why some Christians want Israel to rebuild the temple so that the Antichrist can sit in it so we can watch Jesus nuke him and all of our enemies along with him. Well, in Revelation 17, we discover, um, no, I already said that. We talked about that. but that one view is that you, you need to destroy the temple. But there's a, there's a problem with that. And that is that Jesus very clearly explained that the old stone temple was no longer the temple of God. But that he was constructing a new and a, and a living temple, which he referred to as his own body. And of course, you and I are his body. And now it's at this point that this message gets dreadfully serious. For it means that the Antichrist doesn't want a stone house somewhere in the Middle East. He wants to find a place in you, the temple of God. Now, you may have noticed that the word Antichrist has not appeared in any of the texts that we've read so far. The word only occurs in First and Second John. First John 2, 18, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. In Hebrew thought, the last hour referred to the transition point between this age and the next day, next age, between the, the sixth day in, in which we live and the seventh day where everything is finished. He continues, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed, have chrisma, anointing, by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. He says they all have knowledge. As if someone was trying to tempt them with knowledge in order to save themselves. You all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christos, the Christ, Christos, anointed one. This is the anti-Christos, he who denies the Father and the Son. So, so John seems to say, yeah, an antichrist is coming, but many antichrists have already Come. Then he says that the Antichristos denies that Jesus is the Christos. Christ literally means anointed one, which is wild because John just said that they themselves, reading this letter, were also anointed, as if the Christos was somehow in them, as if they were like his house or his temple. Well, the Christ is, is the one chosen by God to be anointed. And, and in that day, in the Old Testament, you anointed very, three very important people. The prophet who reveals God, the priest 
who brings people to God, and the king who rules and judges in the place of God. To say Jesus is the Christ doesn't mean a whole lot to us to say today, but to say Jesus is the Christ in that day was to say this peasant from Galilee who chooses to be last and the least, who chooses not to exalt himself but humble himself even to the point of a slave, being nailed to a tree in the garden, this Christ, this Jesus who chose to die on a tree is chosen by God as the prophet, the priest, and the king. The one who reveals God, brings people to God, and is the judgment of God. Jesus is the decision of God. And Jesus means God is salvation. Salvation is the will of God. The judgment of God. The decision of God of God, the Word of God. The Antichrist denies that God is salvation and teaches that knowledge is salvation because your will, yourself, is salvation. In other words, if you could just take knowledge of the good, well, then you could choose the good and make yourself good. You could will the good and so save yourself with yourself. The early church described that as Gnosticism, um, the belief that you can be saved by gnosis, knowledge. 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. In the first chapter of John, of his gospel, John taught that the, that the will of God, which is the Word of God, actually became flesh in Jesus. And that the will of God actually becomes flesh in us. Because the children of God, and now I quote, are not born of the will of man, but born of the will of God. That means that doing the will of God is not just your decision. It's not your decision. It's God's decision in you. That means love is not my decision, but God's decision in me. John continues, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, it's from God, and whoever, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God's will is love, and God's will in flesh is Jesus, and God's will in your flesh is salvation, the birth of the body of Christ that does the will of God. So if you're proud of salvation, as if salvation is your own work, if you're proud of salvation, you're not saved. And you will be offended by grace. Second John verse seven, for many deceivers have gone out into the world and those who do not confess, uh, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Uh, such a one, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ, such a one is the deceiver and 
the Antichrist, such a one that lusts for power and hides in religion, that is so arrogant that it sits in the center of God's temple, which is myself, that denies God is salvation, for it believes it is salvation. Such a one sounds an awful lot like my ego. Holy crap. Maybe I really should shave my head and check for the mark. Such a one is the Antichrist, writes John. Well, I don't want to say that I am the Antichrist because that's really hard on church growth, you know? I mean, <laughs> you're, you're new at church, and I, I love the music, and kids' program was great, but the pastor is the Antichrist, and that's a, that's a negative. Saying I'm the Antichrist is hard on church growth, but, but, but saying it, but actually being that is, is another matter. Last week I said I don't know how to grow the church, and that's true. I can't grow the church because it's the living, breathing body of Christ, but I do know how to grow an institution that people might call the church, and this is how. Number one, in the name of Jesus, you feed people's lust for power, but you cloak their lust for power in religion. You talk about grace, but you appeal to everyone's pride. You give special knowledge and congratulate folks for making good choices, and then you condemn other people on the outside for making bad choices. You convince them that you and your institution and their good judgment is salvation. I don't want to say that I'm the Antichrist, but maybe I am at times or have been part of the Antichrist. Antichrist is anything that takes the place of Christ, our Savior. In its most basic form, it manifests as politics. In its more subtle form, it manifests as religion. In its most brutal form, it manifests as politics and religion. Whatever the case, the Antichrist takes the place of Christ, competes with Christ, and so opposes the work of Christ all in the name of Christ. The Antichrist talks salvation, but is offended by actual salvation of sinners who are saved from their sin, which is bad choices. The Antichrist talks grace, but is deeply offended by grace, and so always works undercover to limit grace, uh, put conditions on grace, so that it's not grace. Kind of like this. Welcome to the show. As promised, today we have the first ever live interview with Corey Seatful, the Wonder Kid. For those of you who don't remember, little Corey went into a coma for one week after an emergency appendectomy. He was clinically dead for five days. When little Corey came to, his parents and his doctors were shocked when he talked about his time in heaven. Hi, Corey. Hi. I loved your book. My daughter had a question for you. She wanted to know, what does heaven smell like? 
Um, like cake and sunshine. Aww. Cake and sunshine. I want to go. <laughs> I bet you were excited to go to heaven. Yes, I was excited because everybody was there. God said he loves all of his children. Aww. And my pop-pop was there. Your pop-pop? Yeah, and Dina, there's no way Corey would know what his pop-pop looked like. My father, his grandfather, passed away when I was seven, and yet he described him right down to his cowlick. <laughs> I got to play with everybody, all my old family, and a baseball player named Babe Ruth. Yeah. <laughs> you got to meet Babe Ruth? Yeah. Wow. It's all in the book. Yep. And a girl I played with named Anne Frank. Yeah. And a man with a funny mustache named Hitler, and a nice lady named Mother Teresa. Hold on a second. Did you say you met Hitler in heaven? Uh, it's Adolf Hitler. And he had a funny mustache, and he talked funny. No, honey, that can't be right. There was no Hitler there. Yeah, that's not in the book. No. Oh. Yeah, huh? And there was a nice man named Jeffrey Dahmer and a Mr. Gacy. No. Oh, and John Denver. Oh, no. no. Hey, folks, he's just, he's just a kid. He's just a kid. And this is not what our, no, no. our feelings are okay. on this issue. Yeah. about what you saw. Yeah. No. Well, then maybe you're lying. But I did go to heaven, and Jesus did say that. Boo, Corey, boo. No, we will not sit here and have you mock God as some no. all-forgiving no. monster. No way. If God in Christ Jesus was strong enough and good enough to give Hitler a new heart, would that be good news or bad news? Yeah, it would be good news. I, I, you know, I, I think Glenn sent this video to me. I edited it a little, a little bit, but... I chuckled at first, and then I, I wept. I'm a pastor's kid who grew up in church, and I went to work in church. All my life, I heard religious people say, God is love, and he wants to save everybody. But sadly, not everybody, in fact, most people can't be saved. About 15 years ago, having preached through the most terrifying portions of Scripture, having encountered Jesus in the most horrifying of situations, and having discovered some great theologians from the early church in the last century, I began to think, you know, maybe Jesus could pull it off. I've always confessed that the only way to be saved is to be saved by the Savior. So salvation is 100% grace. Not your work, but God's work. And I've always believed that there is a place of outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth that some call hell. And I've always believed that God is a consuming fire, but I began to see that hell, according to the Revelation, gets destroyed in, 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 a, in a lake of fire and divinity, and that God just might make all things new and reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross, because he says he will. I began to see how it could all be true. 
And I just, I couldn't wait to tell my pastor friends at the denomination. They'd all said that they wished Jesus could save everybody. And I wanted to point to all the scriptures that said, hey, look, it says that he will save everybody. And I think this is how maybe it could all come together. And they seemed offended that I would even suggest such a thing. No, I expected millions of questions. I expected hours of exegesis and theological discussion. I expected it. I hoped for it, but I was not given it. They did not want it. And I soon found myself on trial, public trial, for my hope that the Savior saves all who need to be saved. I can't know their motives, but many who seem to talk so much about grace seem deeply offended at grace. They seemed anti Christ. This was really disturbing to me because I had, I, I knew I had seen Christ in them, but now they seemed anti-Christ. Maybe we're called as a church to battle the anti-Christ. Maybe that's the reason that we are having this forgotten gospel conference. You know, there's really only one gospel. There's only one gospel. And you, you can say it in a name, and the name is Jesus. The name means God is salvation. But that's offensive if you think that you and your organization are salvation. And so I was defrocked. My dreams were shattered. Some of your dreams were shattered. A couple years ago, I heard that an old pastor friend who I dearly loved, but who rejected me during that time, developed some memory issues and lost his church. And something in me thought, serves him right. I prayed, I, I, I prayed that God would bless my old church, but when they struggled and lost their building, something in me thought, serves them right. A few weeks ago, I heard that an old friend whom I had dearly loved, who was on the committee that tried me, but would not debate with me, but seemed to only judge me, I heard that he died unexpectedly leaving behind his wife and his children. And I struggled. I still struggle. That's sick. What's wrong with me? Do I want folks to get what they deserve? because then no one gets anything. Do I hate grace? Do I use my knowledge to judge them out so I can judge me in? Do I refuse to forgive, which I think pretty clearly is the unforgivable sin? Do I lust for power and hide in religion? Do I preach grace as a cover for my pride? Am I the Antichrist.
Do you remember what Jesus said to some Jews, religious Jews, in John chapter 8? He said this, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do his desires. He is a liar and the father of lies. When I listen to Satan's lies that I must create myself, I create a monster, like we preached about last week. When I listen to Satan's lie that I must save myself, I put flesh on the Antichrist, the false Christ, the imitation Christ, the false savior. The, the Antichrist is the imitation Christ, my, my false self, the old man, uh, the, the lawless man, the loveless man, the embodiment of a lie, the lie that I must save myself with my knowledge of good and evil and the power of my own will. That's terrifying. And yet, when I believe the truth, that I'm saved by grace through faith, I give birth to the will of God, and I become the body of Christ. But when I believe the lie that I'm saved by my knowledge of, of good and evil, by my knowledge of good and my ability to choose the good, I put flesh on the, on the Antichrist. You see, Emperor Nero may really have been the, the Antichrist 2,000 years ago. A medieval pope or two may have been the Antichrist. So one day there might be an Antichrist sitting in some temple over in Jerusalem, but if you're really worried about the Antichrist, I wouldn't concern yourself with Middle Eastern dictators, the pope, or even the ministerial committee of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'd shine the light on your own ego. And so I hope you realize that the Antichrist is far more horrid than you ever imagined. And I hope you want to kill him. But how do you kill him? You can't kill him with your knowledge or your will to power or the power of your own will. In the Revelation, he's conquered by the Word of God. A sword comes out of his mouth, and he captures the Antichrist. And then he's thrown into a lake of fire and theon, fiery divinity. Second Thessalonians describes the very same thing, I think, but from a different angle. Jesus Christ simply speaks, and the truth destroys the lie. Jesus Christ simply appears, and the light destroys the darkness, destroyed by the epiphaneo of his parousia, his effective presence. The, the revelation of the Christ destroys the Antichrist. The revelation of God is salvation destroys the lie that you are salvation. The revelation of grace destroys your pride. The revelation of the new man destroys the old man, the loveless man, the lawless man. And do you see? He must be destroyed in order for you to know Jesus. And I think this is the really cool and wonderful news. The Christ appears when and where the Antichrist disappears. For where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where the old man dies, the new man is revealed. 
So how do you kill the Antichrist? You expose yourself to the Christ. In 33 AD, the dragon convinced the beast from the sea to conspire with the beast from the land. He convinced Rome to conspire with Jerusalem, politics with religion, Pilate with Caiaphas. He convinced them to nail the Christ to a tree in a garden in order to save themselves. A Roman centurion actually pounded the nails. And he held the spear that was thrust into Christ's side, the spear that Hitler thought would give him such power. But he didn't understand power. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. On the tree, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. The earth shook. The tombs were opened, and Jesus delivered up his spirit. Then and there, that centurion dropped to his knees, and he confessed, surely this was the Son of God. And one day, every knee will drop, and every tongue will confess. But that's how the Christ conquers the Antichrist and creates us in his own image. He conquers all things and creates all things with the power of his love. And so he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And he took the cup after supper and having given thanks, and he said, this is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So close your eyes. Just take a minute. Close your eyes. And, 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 and ask God this question. Just silently in your heart say, Father, have I been trying to save myself? How have I been trying to save myself? Isn't that why you can't sleep? Isn't that why you, you feel driven? I mean, I don't know, maybe you can sleep, but you've got to feel driven sometimes. Isn't that why you're anxious? And, and afraid? And it bothers you when someone close to you succeeds and, and you think you don't? Isn't it what makes you competitive? With the people you say you love? And even God himself?
Do you think that you're the Christ? Because, see, I think there's a word for that. Well, I want you to hear the gospel. This is the eternal gospel. That means this cannot be changed. This is the way things are. You cannot save yourself with yourself. It's just more self. You cannot save yourself because you have already been saved. from the foundation of the world by the word of God and the will of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he cannot love you more than he does not right now. He cannot exercise more power and authority than he does right now. He's good. You wondered if he was good, and he is showing you in this world that he is so good. When you believe him, you will do the will of God. And he's making sure that you do. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Come to the table. Expose yourself to the Christ. Kill the Antichrist. And be the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry for going so long, but I need to tell you something before you leave. I am not the Antichrist. <laughs> And you are not the Antichrist. The problem is that we have thought we were the Antichrist. We've believed a lie. You know, there's this amazing thing that happens in the Revelation. Jesus is referred to, and I don't fully understand this, but I'm getting a hint, I think. Jesus is referred to as the one who was and is and is to come. The Antichrist is referred to as the one who was and is not and is to come. It's like he only exists in our fears, in the past and in the future. Uh, but God exists in the now, the eternal now. He is what is. And so the Antichrist is a lie that we put flesh on somehow. The darkness that has taken a form and tempted us and Jesus the light has conquered. And so um, very simply, by way of benediction, I would just say, um, believe the gospel you are not the Antichrist. You are the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.